Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Jugantino. For everybody who's listened to a couple of episodes, one episode, or maybe even every single one, we want to make an appeal to consider becoming a patron. We have a Patreon, and there, if you sign up for just a few dollars a month or as much as you can afford, you can become a patron of the show. What that means is that you've decided to give us support to help us do what we do and do it better. With your support, we can expand the scope of our show and make sure episodes continue to come out in a timely and regular fashion for you and anybody else who likes reimagining Soviet Georgia. So please check out patreon.com slash reimagining Soviet Georgia. On today's episode, we had the pleasure of interviewing a friend of the show, Pietro Shakarian, on Soviet Armenia and Anastas Mikoyan. My name is Pietro Shakarian. I am a professor of Armenian history at the American University of Armenia in Yerevan. And it is a great pleasure to be here with you. I study the period of Khrushchev's thought and uh, the possibilities of democratization in the USSR and Anastas Mikoyan's role uh, in those endeavors. I know that you've written on and studied extensively uh, the life and career of Mikoyan. So, I mean, who was he? Anastas Mikoyan. Anastas Hovanesi Mikoyan or Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan, take your pick on how you would call him, but he was an Armenian old Bolshevik and a Bolshevik revolutionary, but he was also a political survivor. So he survived all these, you know, various Soviet governments from Lenin all the way to Brezhnev, right? And Mikoyan was known very much in the Soviet context for being involved with the food industry, with trade, right? So a lot of people know, like, you know, he helped bring Eskimo pies to the USSR. Armenians call this pakbahak, you know, so people know this. I mean, the, the book of, of good and tasty food, you know, this is Mikoyan's kind of remit, right? But also, you know, he was a participant in the Baku Commune. Um, he was very, very close to Stepan Shamian and his family. In fact, after Shamian was killed, he adopted effectively his sons. So that he he was uh, he had a, a great revolutionary past. But also, he was the governor of the the first secretary, I should say, of the North Caucasus in the twenties. And it was his idea to create the autonomous Chechen Republic. So Chechnya was not a republic. It didn't have any of those symbols. It was Mikoyan who advocated giving Chechnya autonomy, right? So there's that. But also a major, major role Mikoyan plays is in de-Stalinization. So removal of Stalin's personality cult um, and, you know, rehabilitating 
uh, former prisoners of the Gulag, uh, bringing, you know, kind of posthumously rehabilitating many people. Uh, one of his first acts in 1954 is to call for the rehabilitation of Charens, this very famous Armenian revolutionary poet. Uh, so this is kind of who he was. Also, of course, and, and we last but not least, his major involvement in foreign affairs with Fidel Castro, with uh, you know China, with Hungary. He's all over the place in terms of Soviet foreign affairs. So that's kind of Mikoyan in a nutshell. I hope that that was that was good for you. I don't think it's going to fly very well when they're going to find out an Armenian was like a huge part of destalinization. It, it was not. Well, actually, let me tell you something that when the 1956 uh, Tbilisi demonstrations arose, Mikoyan was one of the primary targets. I mean, in addition to Khrushchev, but Mikoyan himself, because they said, you know, this conniving Armenian, this conniving Armenian, uh, you know, you know, basically is, uh, you know, how do I say this? He's ruining the good name of our native son, Stalin. You know, he's besmirching Stalin, our native son. And so, uh, yeah, that was actually something that, I mean, if you, especially if you read Blauvelt's uh, edited volume on, on Soviet Georgia, you know, they've done a lot of work. Uh, he, the contributors of that volume did a lot of work on this 1956 Tbilisi uh, unrest. And they actually found that this was, you know, one of the things that was reported, you know, there was kind of criticism of Mikoyan, so to speak. But Mikoyan, I should also note too that, that Mikoyan was involved. I mean, uh, you, we cannot put this in very kind of black and white ethnic or national dimensions because Mikoyan was involved very much in helping rehabilitate many Georgian Bolsheviks who had been repressed during the, the, the purges and specifically victims of, of Beria's repression, because, you know, as part of his effort to consolidate his grip on the Republic, he purged, as you guys know, uh, you know, many, many, uh, you know, Bolshevik cadres in Georgia. So I think um, it, that's something else. I mean, it's, it's easy to say, well, you know, because he's Armenian, you know, <laughs> he, has, he has this kind of, uh, you know, maybe hidden agenda. But the reality is, though, I mean, he was, I mean, he was, he was, he was, he was, um, he was very sensitive to his Armenian background, and he cared for his Armenian background. He had a lot of, he had an Armenian network, a patronage network in, in Yerevan that was especially influential during the thought. But he, at the same time, was also very much, a, you know, a socialist and internationalist. And um, so he was able to kind of, I mean, he, he, he kind of, uh, actually, this is something I want to mention, too. His philosophy on nationality policy is that we can have internationalism that does not suppress distinctive national cultures. So we should have internationalism, but we need to be sensitive to the local national cultures. And in fact, he actually brought, he, he was tasked by Khrushchev, we're going to get into this later, but he was tasked to lead the Commission on Nationality Policy for the uh, 1960s constitutional reform. And he actually had on that commission, he brought in the first secretary of Armenia and the first secretary of Georgia. So right there, I mean, it, it shows he was very sensitive to these issues. So, so maybe you could just explain like, how did he survive so long? Like how was he able to go uh, when other, others were not from you know, being an old Bolshevik all the way up to Brezhnev? How did he survive? I think it was overall, you could say it was good political intuition and a fair mix of, you know, 
Sudba, uh, as the Russians would say, fate, I guess you could call it. Uh, but he actually, um, there's no one explanation for how he survived. So if you go back to like the 20s, of course, I mean, he's, you know, a, a kind of revolutionary idealist. But by the time you get into the 30s, I mean, he has, uh, you know, he's supporting Stalin, but we also have to think by the end of Stalin's tenure, Mikoyan comes very close to being purged by Stalin. This is actually quite interesting. Mikoyan, in this respect, almost did not get away, right? Stalin, uh, you know, became unsatisfied with Mikoyan over time. I mean, Mikoyan was known to dissent on certain decisions of Stalin, such as the deportations of North Caucasians to Central Asia. Um, and so Stalin became dissatisfied with him. And by the 50s, by the early 50s, he was, you know, in line to be repressed. Right. And Stalin's death basically kind of saved him. Now, when we get to the 50s, he allies with Khrushchev. But the alliance is an alliance that, uh, you know, advances certainly many of his own ideas within the context of Soviet leadership. So de-Stalinization, uh, you know, a return to the uh, so-called correct path of, you know, Soviet ideology, return to Leninism, right? These are ideas that are really, really sincerely embraced by Mikoyan. These are ideas that he fully believes in. But he does not really fully, I mean, if we talk about survival, he doesn't really survive in the Brezhnev period. We have to understand this, that so Khrushchev is removed in 1964 through this coup. Mikoyan is done by Brezhnev and company for a year as the de facto president of the Soviet Union. But then after that, they, they remove him from office. And initially, he leaves office with very um, you know, good privileges as a retiree, much better than uh, Khrushchev. But still, um, these privileges are gradually you know, diminished over, you know, over the years until his death in 1970. So he did survive, but there's no one easy explanation to, to pinpoint how he uh, survived, so to speak. And so, like, you know, as far as I understand if, uh, from what you've just said and from what I've read that you've written, um, Mikoyan, of course, has this important role in how nationalities policy will develop under Khrushchev. So like, maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Like where, what is his role in how Soviet nationalities policies will develop? Um, Mikoyan becomes really kind of the leading kind of voice and theoretician of Soviet nationality policy after Stalin's death uh, in 1953. And so Beria originally does some kind of, you know, I guess you could call it loosening of restrictions on nationalities in 1953, but he doesn't articulate a concrete philosophy or guiding uh, idea on, on what he intends to do. He just is implementing a series of policies that are intended to assist him in this power struggle with, or against Khrushchev, I should say, for the post-Stalin leadership. But Mikoyan is the first Soviet official who really articulates a, a kind of a uh, a new approach toward the nationality policy, which in fact was not so new. It was really kind of returned to the earlier kind of Leninist interpretation of Soviet nationality policy, where he basically says that, well, we should be against national chauvinism, but equally wrong is national nihilism. We should not be insensitive to nationality concerns. He expressed this idea when he came to Yerevan in, on March, I mean, he came to Yerevan in March, 1954, and on March 11th, 1954, he delivered a speech 
where he called for the rehabilitation of the Armenian poet Chadens and for the republication of several prominent Armenian national authors, such as Rafi and Patkanyan. He also uh, discusses Miasmi Khan, the very famous Soviet Armenian revolutionary from the NEP period, somebody who, was, who helped really rebuild Armenia during uh, NEP. And uh, so this basic idea that he expresses, opposing both national chauvinism and national nihilism, later becomes a foundation for his approach toward reforming nationality policy in uh, the 1961 Communist Party program. So in 1958, Khrushchev begins the effort to revise and revamp the Communist Party program. And the third party program that he develops, um, there is a section on nationality policy. Originally, Khrushchev's vision was, vision was much more um, utopian and much more uh, idealistic, I guess you could say. He believed that, you know, we had already kind of reached, you know, this kind of communist uh, paradise. And that in reality, we should push for this idea of this slianyi, this idea of a merger of nations, right? And Mikoyan was vocally opposed to this. In the drafts that you read of the 61 party program, he is very, very strongly opposed. And in the end, um, his revisions, his proposed revisions were all virtually all accepted. And they actually were instrumental in shaping the kind of policy that came to be in the 1961 party program. And in addition, the philosophy that he articulated in Yerevan in 1954, that was effectively the idea of the 1961 party program. So that idea, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, inevitable that this, like anything else in history, it wasn't inevitable that that idea would become uh, the, the nationality platform of the party program in 1961. But in reality, it did. Um, and he, in fact, there was the 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 struggle, uh, you know, over nationality policy in the thought in the level of the Soviet leadership was between this kind of uh, Slyanyi position and this position of rapprochement of nations, this idea of merger of nations versus rapprochement of nations. And those who advocated merger were advocating more or less the assimilation of distinctive nationalities or russification, if you will. But those who advocated rapprochement basically advocated kind of, you know, a live and let live approach toward nationalities. Let them have their own republics, let them have their own language, let them do what they want. Um, and, you know, we'll kind of, uh, you know, you know, coexist in this kind of Soviet socialist uh, system together. So basically advocating for a multi-ethnic federation. And that... Uh, his position, like I said, won. Mikoyan, the position that Mikoyan favored won uh, in the struggle for the 1961 party program. And as a result of it, Khrushchev made him the chairman of the Subcommittee on Nationality Policy and National State Construction for the uh, Soviet constitutional reforms of the 1960s. So Khrushchev was thinking of dramatically revamping the Soviet constitution uh, in line with this principle of socialist democracy, uh, to devolve more powers to workers, to devolve more powers to republics and local entities, so on and so forth, to make a more representative Soviet system, right? More what Khrushchev would say, uh, Leninist, socialist, uh, democratic system, right? And in the process, Mikoyam was involved with, you know, 
redeveloping or redefining Soviet nationality policy and also um, you know, reforming the uh, ethno-federal uh, state structure. And this in involved uh, proposals to dramatically devolve powers to republics and local entities, even including autonomous republics, to really undo the excessive centralization of the Stalin constitution of 1936. And it was actually quite uh, ambitious what he and his uh, reformers on the subcommittee were uh, you know, proposing. So he actually had the first secretaries of three republics on his committee, including uh, Georgia, Armenia, and Uzbekistan. So it was an incredible reform, and a reform that has actually not been written about uh, at all. But it's kind of like a what-if question, because it was never realized due to the fact that Khrushchev was overthrown in 1964. But um, it really, really is, is quite interesting. Then, of course, you have some questions like, what if they are going to devolve so much power to the Union Republics, what would happen, let's say, between Union Republics and autonomous regions or autonomous republics, right? Would autonomous republics, you know, be at the mercy then of Union Republics, so to speak? Um, and actually, it's interesting because they try to kind of, you know, navigate through this by finding ways to give more, uh, you know, power to autonomous republics. For instance, uh, Mikoyan had this idea that we should not have uh, Union Republics approve the constitutions of autonomous republics. So, for instance, in Soviet Georgia, they would not have to, or they would not, uh, they would not approve the constitution of Abkhazia, let's say, something like this, which is a really dramatic reform. Uh, but it, it would have been interesting to see how they would have been able to negotiate through this. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's really, really kind of an interesting, you know, potential um, alternative route to what was, uh, you know, actually realized in the end. You know, if, if that experiment would have happened, maybe we're given like a positive experience of what could have been done as, instead of everyone pretty much starting wars and, and murdering each other, which is what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and because I think they would have done at least having like a, within a Soviet Soviet sort of let's say guardianship, it might have worked out a little bit better. Well, I think it, you know this was almost like a kind of a precursor to what Gorbachev was proposing in 1991 with the new Union Treaty. By the time he was proposing that, I mean it was, I mean it was very very late in the game, so to speak. Now, had an idea like that been implemented much earlier like in 1964, let's say, a reformed union of states, we might not have ended up with what we, you know, had in 1991. And we might have been able to avoid a lot of the bloodshed and chaos that came in 1990s. In particular, I'm thinking about the caucuses specifically, but not only. Um, that actually it, it would have been probably a better deal for most republics in the end to have this, you know, deal implemented. Uh, or have these this new kind of uh, reforms implemented uh, at that time in 1964. But again, it's like kind of like a, a counterfactual question, right? I mean, we don't really know uh, exactly um, how that would have gone down, so to speak. Uh, maybe this is a good opportunity then to talk a little bit about um, Mukoyan as a uh, 
you know, um, a man on the international scene, especially his relationship with Cuba, which I, if, as far as I understand that he was the first Soviet statesman to go to Cuba um, after the revolution. Is that correct? Um, yeah, actually, well, he was the first major uh, Soviet leader to go to Cuba. In fact, he was actually the one who encouraged this relationship. So already uh, it was very apparent you know, very early on after the success of the Cuban revolution, the, the Soviets began to kind of, um, you know, explore the possibilities for relations with the Cubans, with the new Cuban government. Um, there was initially this idea of let's stick with kind of the Cuban Communist Party, right? Now, this is interesting because Castro himself was not part of that formal Cuban Communist Party structure. He was a separate, you know, this is a separate thing completely. And the... It was it was something, uh, you know, quite interesting to establish relations with this uh, group as opposed to maintaining the relationship with the old kind kind of uh, Cuban Communist Party guard. And Mikoyan actually was quite inspired by what he saw with Fidel and Che and all these people in the in the Cuban uh, Communist leadership or the Cuban at the time revolutionary leadership, I should say. Uh, that they reminded him of his, you know, revolutionary youth in the Baku Commune. In fact, even he even said this explicitly. I mean, that that this was something very emotional for him. And so he encouraged this idea of establishing uh, relations with Havana and making Cuba a strategic ally of the USSR. But Mikoyam, it should be noted, was opposed to the idea of deploying missiles to Cuba. So we talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mikoyan was against this idea of bringing the missiles down there. That this was an idea that Khrushchev really was pushing, and he supported. Uh, but it was not um, it was not Mikoyan's uh, idea. And in fact, there was a kind of an issue at the end because the uh, strategic partnership that had been forged between Moscow and Havana uh, made it that Moscow would be obliged to support Cuba uh, no matter what. And when Moscow put their missiles in, in Cuba and aimed them at the United States in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, or Karibsky Crisis, if we're going to use the Russian. So at the time, if you're going to put your missiles there and act like you're going to be a defender of Cuba, the Cubans are going to expect you to follow through with that. That no matter what, you're going to defend them, you're going to keep the missiles here to, to protect them. The deal struck between Khrushchev and Kennedy to remove the missiles from Cuba was seen by Fidel as a betrayal um, by Khrushchev. And so he was very angry with this. You can imagine, you know, how passionate he felt about this issue. And he felt that he was being played as a pawn on the superpower chessboard. And so uh, Mikoyan was actually tasked to go there and defuse things because there could have, there was actually another lesser known Cuban missile crisis where, in fact, Fidel refused to allow the missiles to leave uh, Cuba. And Mikoyan had to negotiate with him. He had to negotiate, and even his wife, Ashken, you know, died in the process. I mean, she, she had passed away. He couldn't even go to her funeral because this was such a serious issue to negotiate with, with Castro. And before that, even, I mean, he had negotiated with Cubans earlier. There's a very famous anecdote where basically he's negotiating with Che Guevara, and basically, um, you know, Mikoyan tells Che at one point because they cannot agree on, on, you know, I guess, uh, a trade deal between the USSR and Cuba that 
Mikoyan says, well, you know, now I know why they call you Che. Exactly, I know why. Because in Armenian, Che means no. And that's why they call you Che Givara, you know. So, so anyway, so, so he had been, uh, you know, accustomed to negotiating with the Cubans before, but this was real tough negotiations. You know, Fidel was very, a very passionate and emotional man. And, uh, you know, it was up to Mikoyan to kind of finesse him, to encourage him to release the missiles. And he did eventually. I'm curious, just, you know, as a side note, was there any response in Soviet Armenia to Cuba in like on a local, on a local, on a local level in terms of like, culture or, you know, politically, like, was there anything uniquely in Armenia? In response well, to not, I mean, it was kind of like within the rest of, it was kind of similar to the reaction within the rest of the USSR, but the Armenians, I mean, if you look, for example, I was, um, I was researching Mikoyan's visits to Armenia and also Khrushchev's visit in 1961, right? And so uh, in 1961, what else is going on, you know, in the news, right? We have Yuri Gagarin's space flight. We have, of course, the Bay of Pigs issue. And the way this is reported in the Soviet Armenian press, I mean, this is like, you know, you could see the front page, big letters, bravo Cuba. So, and you have like, you know, Armenian students, you know, listening photos of Armenian students at Yerevan State University, listening to the radio, at these developments, what's going on in Cuba. And actually it had a major cultural impact because to this day, Armenians, even when they think about their issues with Karabakh and Armenian fighters who were fighting, you know, for Karabakh, like, for instance, uh, the Armenian-American Monty Melkonian, right? A lot of Armenians like to say that he was our Che Guevara, right? So Armenians have this very romantic notion today in Armenia of Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, of Fidel. And uh, actually, it's, it's quite interesting how that has you know, persisted even to the present day. So there was a very unique reaction uh, and a very Armenian embrace of the events in Cuba at the time uh, in, in, in the sixties. When I've, I've, cause I've read some of Monte Melkonian's essays and you know, it's interesting the way that he of course frames the Karabakh struggle politically in terms of being like a national liberation struggle and seeing it sort of like in uh, sometimes you know, framing it as being in the same kind of lineage as the uh, you know, anti-colonial struggles and the guerrilla struggles of the of the 50s, 50s but i would i would say one thing i mean he, he sees it as as a uh, you know as a national liberation struggle but he does not i mean he was a, so we should note this this is not something that many armenians in armenia like to talk about especially more nationally minded armenians so if you talk to armenians who are very very gung-ho nationalistic dajnak who love let's say nejde you know, this Armenian nationalist, you know, from the 20s, you know, the uh, the impression, they don't talk about Monty Melkonian's more kind of leftist and socialistic leanings. And in fact, his love exactly for USSR. And he actually believed that the USSR should stay and, you know, continue existing. He believed in the preservation of the Soviet, uh, you know, state federation. He thought that this was kind of like a Vahan or a shield for Armenia. And so that's actually an important note, uh, you know, to take from this. He did not see the USSR as a colonial empire, because now, now this is another narrative that we have today, that people are trying to impose on, on the Soviet history. It was a colonial empire, which is completely ridiculous. Because if you look at, there's, of course, the, um, 
the famous joke of these Georgians who are taking a flight uh, from Tbilisi to Moscow, and they look outside the window and they say, look at everything we lost, you know, look at this great country, because the reality is Armenians, Georgians, we controlled the black market, you know. And so, <laughs> and so the reality is that actually Armenia and Georgia as countries in the Soviet context really prospered uh, a lot. And a lot of what they have today is exactly due to the Soviet legacy. And in fact, you could even make the case that they had more in the sense that the Soviet socialist system provided a means for mobility for the population. You had jobs, you had, you had access to a livelihood, right? What do you have today? in these post-Soviet states. Not really that much. And you have a lot of people who want to leave, which is very sad. You know, they want to leave their homeland, you know, but the USSR incentivized people to stay. But you have a livelihood, you have a job. You know, you have, you can work in this factory, let's say, or work on this, you know, collective farm or whatever. At least people had those opportunities, you know, for mobility. You could be one generation a peasant and the next generation a worker and the next generation an intellectual, right? So, so, that's something, and it's, it's interesting how um, it's almost like parallel with what with the decline of the, if we look at the U.S., of course, U.S. is completely different, but you look at the decline of the American dream with the fall of Keynesianism and the rise of neoliberalism, it's kind of a similar, you know, kind of phenomenon. I'm wondering, like, you know, how is this, um, some of this... Uh historical memory of the Soviet Union play out in Armenia today, you know, because one of the big uh, topics that we try to cover on the podcast is how it the political, the political dimensions of the Soviet memory and anti-Soviet memory politics in Georgia. And I'm curious, like, in what way is the USSR remembered today in, in Armenia? You have two uh, prevailing popular points of view. One popular point of view is the point of view that you hear from the narod, right? The people, you go to the regions, you talk to people on the street, uh, they will tell you how nostalgic they are for the Soviet times. So they love the Soviet times. It's almost like overly idealized, you know, kind of view of the USSR. And, and I see you nodding in agreement, so probably you understand in Georgia it's something similar. But this is, this is, this is kind of... Uh, you know, one point of view. The other point of view is a view largely held by kind of, um, I want to say, kind of liberal intellectuals in Armenia who would who would uh, emphasize this idea that the USSR was all about repressions, that there's no difference between Lenin and Stalin, that it was all repression all the time, um, that uh, actually the first republic is something to, which was actually for Armenia was a really awful period. So uh, the Eastern Armenia, this is say Russian Armenia, became independent for a brief period of time during the Russian Civil War, and it was an absolute chaos. I mean, it was a period where it was Armenia was filled with these refugees from the genocide from Ottoman Turkey. There was disease, there was famine. It was an awful time, a really, really terrible time. And of course, you also had continuing uh, ethnic violence over territories like you know Nagorno-Karabakh and Nakichevan and Zangazor and, and this kind of a thing. Really, really, uh, you know, uh, awful period. Yet you now have liberal intellectuals today in Armenia who idealize this period, that this was something really great for us, that this was, you know, somehow uh, that this was something that we should look at as an example of how to run Armenia today or something like this. It's ridiculous. Uh, but the reality is um, you have these two points of view. And and the truth is that the like with anything else, you have the, the reality is somewhere in between. 
you have, of course, terror and repressions. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, especially during Stalin's time. All right. But you also have, you know, a great, you know, social system, a great period, uh, you know, great means for social mobility. And this is what a lot of people remember. So the Soviet system cannot be interpreted in just one way. And in fact, the Soviet history really kind of follows the same pattern of the Russian history, where you have czars. I mean, in, in the imperial Russian history, you had czars who might have been more reform-minded, like Alexander I, and then you might have had more reactionary czar, like, let's say, Nicholas I, or you look at Alexander II and then Alexander III. And in the Soviet Union, you have this kind of back and forth with, let's say, Lenin and Stalin, then Khrushchev, then Brezhnev, then Gorbachev. And so it kind of follows, uh, it follows that same kind of pattern, you know, so to speak. But um, to say that the Soviet period was all about repressions all the time, and, you know, it's all about, let's say, the bloody Bolsheviks and so on and so forth, I think it completely misses the point. Um, and so and the other thing is also, we talk about historical memory, not much. And so that's, I'm just talking even on the popular level. The Soviet past in Armenia in general has not been studied critically. And if you go to bookstores in Armenia, this is very much reflected in what you see on the bookshelves. You see a lot of stuff um, that is about the Armenian genocide, about the First Republic of Armenia in 1918, um, about Armiansky Babros, you see this in Russian too, books like this, but you don't see too much at all about the Soviet period, which is actually very important because you look at, like, let's say, Yerevan, so much in Yerevan was built due to the Soviet past. It's a legacy of the Soviet times. So um, it is a very, very understudied past, and actually there's no shortage of material on it. That's actually the irony. You go to the archives here, the like the um, social political archive. Uh, I mean, you go to the central archive, the social political archive, all these archives in, in Armenia, which are under the umbrella overall of the Armenian National Archive. There's just a, 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 a um, the material is just rich. It's just rich with, with historical material on the Soviet past, yet it is completely understudied. Um, so my research on Mikoyan actually is kind of pushing toward this, uh, you know, broader objective also of looking at the past of Soviet Armenia. This history, not only of the post-Stalin nationality policy, but of de-Stalinization is incredibly important because the process of de-Stalinization is intimately associated with democratization. The fact that this de-Stalinization occurred, also I would remind people, endogeneously within the Soviet Union without any help from the West or without the West teaching people how to do things that we need democracy training, you know, because all oh, the people here can't think and, and they can't, they don't know how to learn. And it's got this complete garbage. It's complete malarkey. The reality is it shows that people here can, you know, move toward democracy on their own. They don't need to be taught that. Right. That's number one. Number two is that this whole process of destalinization, like I said, is intimately associated with democratization. It's very important to remember this, this process and this policy. And that, you know, if you can talk about the Stalinist repressions freely and openly, you can talk about anything. And that's why I think, you know, if I had to pinpoint one thing I find very significant about Mikoyan and his work in the Soviet Union, it would have to be the destalinization. It would have to be the destalinization for it opened up the possibilities for democratization in the Soviet state.
what is it about, you know, post Soviet, like peoples, Georgians, um, you know, Ukrainians, I mean, Armenians, what is it about this obsession with needing to be victimized, right? Like there's like a thing where it's like a real thing where everybody wants to be like the victim of history. And it's like this obsession with like every country or every ethnic group is trying to put forward this like mm -hmm. some kind of like world victims thing, you know, or the we're the mo most like oppressed or something. And of course, then like the other, you know, uh, we had Eric Scott on and talks about Georgia, which actually the Georgians were, you know, very well off in the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, like you said, like got so much actually expanded their their reach in ways that never they've never been able to. Right? So this is a completely different narrative than Georgians try to tell itself right about itself, the Soviet Union. I would even go further about Georgia. I would go further. I mean, we think about like, so Eric Scott would talk about expanding Georgia's, Georgia's reach within the Soviet context. That is to say, Georgian restaurants all over the USSR in, very Soviet, in various Soviet cities. So you could get Khachapuri in Vladivostok, let's say, right? But not only that, actually expanded, it. this, this whole uh, status of Georgia in the USSR expanded uh, Georgia's reach even globally. Because for instance, now, if you were to, you know, pick up a book on, you know, the life of the Soviet Union from National Geographic, suddenly there were overviews of each republic and there was a special section on Georgia and suddenly all these Americans knew what Georgia was before they didn't even care what Georgia was. What is Georgia, you know? But now they look at a book and they find, oh, Georgia's there. This is, this is interesting. So it's through Russia right, that many Americans began to learn about all these different places before they didn't even care, you know, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing I want to say about this uh, idea of the victimhood, um, it's a very, very powerful narrative, but also it's a narrative that I think, especially for those who, uh, in the post-Soviet space, uh, those elites who really, really see a future with the West, they want to emphasize a, a, this idea that the Soviet experiment was a complete failure, um, that uh, not only was it a complete failure, but that, you know, we, are, we want to be on the right side of history, the side of the West. And so we will endorse this idea of the USSR as a prison house of nations or a kind of a place of repression and, and so on and so forth. Uh, by the way, Armenians are not completely exempt from this either because there, of course, is the infamous treaties of Moscow and Kars, where certain Armenian territories like Kars, uh, Surmalu, which included Mount Ararat and Ardahan, right? And these also kind of overlap into kind of Georgian, you know, claims as well, too, as we know, and that these were kind of given by the Bolsheviks to Kemalist Turkey. Now, the past, of course, over this, you know, uh, over these treaties, is, is much more complicated, but a lot of people like to frame this as being one as part of the evidence, part of the body of evidence of how terrible the Bolsheviks were, that the Bolsheviks gave away our lands and so on and so forth. Um, and so that is that that narrative of victimhood is is quite powerful. And it's better to, you know, cast yourself as a good victim against a big empire uh, than it is to admit that you yourself were a participant in the system, that you yourself uh, you know, fully embrace the system, right? That's a much more complicated narrative. Same thing if we look especially at repressions. So it's one thing if you say, well, look, 
the, the Stalinist repressions or, or the repressions for Moscow were implemented from Moscow completely. It's just all Moscow is doing. It completely ignores the fact that you have local agency in, in places like Armenia and, of course, in Georgia. Uh, but if we look at, for example, like I've researched, the, I, I've studied in depth period of the repressions in Armenia. And I actually saw a document in the Armenian archives recently where uh, Malenkov had been, you know, dispatched by Stalin to Yerevan, you know, to purge the Armenian leadership. And he met with some local Armenian officials who were calling for more repressions in the Republic. And they were naming names of local officials in the rayons. And that, you know, hey, you know, this guy's wife said something positive about Hanjian, or that, you know, hey, uh, you know, this guy we know, his brother was arrested as a Dajnak, so therefore he must be a Dajnak too, and we should, we have to, you know, expose them, this kind of a thing. So there was clearly a local agency. To say that this was all done by the Russians completely, you know, takes out the reality of the nuance of the history uh, and the fact that many people locally were complicit in, in, in the repressions, to just note an example of that. Uh, but, you know, in a creative way, too, um, of course, many Soviet nationalities partook in the Soviet system, and they helped build the Soviet system. So to say that this is all a Russian imposition, or this is all coming from Russia, in fact, there are some Russians who would argue that it was actually the other way around, that we had to, we had the burden of taking on Georgia and taking on Armenia. And we gave you so much and you just spit back at us, that kind of a thing. So there's another dynamic here too, when you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I think like that, I think that is like the dominant narrative of the Russian nationalists. It's like, we have supported all these people who are ungrateful. <laughs> um, right, and then I was gonna say that, as you know, like one of the, uh, the the neo-Nazi rallying cries of the 1990s was we need to stop feeding the caucuses. You know, not only North Caucasus, I mean, Boris would come to mean the North Caucus, obviously, but this is like a sentiment that had existed prior. A lot of people in Armenia, you know, don't like Navalny. It's it's not a secret. And there's a reason for that because they, they know what he said about Caucasians and they don't like it. And Central Asians. And, yeah. and Central Asians. And Central mm -hmm. Asians, too. So, so, and yet we claim, and even there are people on the Russian left who have embraced Navalny as this kind of a hero. And I don't, personally, I don't understand. Because if you are going to embrace kind of, you know, chauvinism or kind of a Russian nation statism, especially because Russia today, by the way, and some Russians need to be reminded of this, that the reality is Russia today is still a multi-ethnic state. It's not, it has not become a nation state. That's why I criticize this idea of the Russian nation statism, right? And in this way, it was actually good when you had the USSR because, you know, you were forced to acknowledge that, oh my God, we're a multi-ethnic country. We have Georgians, we have Armenians. You might criticize the Soviet system. That's one thing I understand. But this union of republics, the union of, of states, this was a good thing. I mean, I even, I even met with an a, uh, Armenian activist who participated in the Karabakh movement, who was really, I mean, he's a socialist. And he was saying that, you know, in 1991, we lost our country. He wasn't talking about Armenia. He was talking about USSR. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, th this, is, this is how most people feel. Same here. I think it's like, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack. But one thing I really have, had a hard time with is this 
lack of context of what's happening in the world that a lot of people who criticize the Soviet Union from the Soviet Union. It's like, do you know <laughs> what was happening? Like most people didn't have water. Most people didn't have industry, but like you were sort of in this first, like the global South, which was super poor and looking at Soviet Union is super privileged the way that, you know, the like a you know, privileged country or empire, whatever you want to call it, multinational, national, you know, uh, entity. And like, so you have this perspective and then the only way they can develop is sort of like trying to do what the Soviet Union did or at least get help from them because the West is like completely icing them out, not giving them any ability to industrialize. Then you have the first world, right? Like you have the West and there's like, you know, of course it's always uneven, you know, development within the West. And we even had this, like, we recently spoke to someone in Turkey who was like on the borderlands in Turkey to Georgia and, and um, Turkey, who was like, I would watch from my city how like Georgia had lights, electricity, and we yeah. did, it, you know? Yeah. And it's funny because after 1990, it's the opposite. It's like the Georgians are watching the Turkish have lights and they don't have lights anymore. You know, it's yeah. like the reverse of what happened. Well, and also not only, not only this too, I mean, even you look at like, so in the Armenian context, we had, uh, there was the Radio Yerevan broadcasts, which they would, in Armenia, they were very sensitive to Kurdish rights, Kurds and Yazidis. And Arme Yerevan was actually a center for Kurdology in the USSR after uh, Leningrad and Moscow. And so what they did was in Radio Yerevan, they would record Kurdish folklore, Kurdish language and all this, and it could be broadcasted. And I mean, it was broadcasted and the broadcasts could be picked up in Turkey and Iran and Iraq. And so suddenly Kurds whose language was being suppressed in places like Turkey, they could, they could hear their native tongue. They could hear their, their, you know, language being spoken and even sung. Like there was even a Kurdish, you guys know, in Georgia, there was a Kurdish rock band, right? So you get, you get the idea. I mean, it, it, it is much more complicated history. I would also say to something else that I think even people in post-Soviet space don't understand what's going on in the world because, for instance, you have, you know, uh, Ukraine and, and Georgia, let's say, and I mean, even you have some Armenian activists who say this, we should join EU. Oh my God, EU is such a panacea. Let's join EU. I don't know if they've looked at Greece or Spain or Italy or any of these places. Romania, they, Bulgaria. Romania, Bulgaria. So if it's such a wonderful panacea, I mean, if it's such a paradise, you know, why, why I mean, how do we end up with these kind of examples, right? This is something they don't talk about. That they kind of like kind of keep you know under wraps, but the reality is, um, it, it is not a paradise. But this is actually a problem with small reforms here. You know, I'm a labor you know leader here, and whenever we try to do any reform, like ask for minimum wage, we don't have minimum wage. I mean, post Soviet Georgia is insanely bad. It's one like it's it's because of Mr. Bendukidze and his reforms. Right. And also the intense pressure of domestic pressure of like Saakashvili's party and his group still today. And they're, um, you know, kind of stifling efforts, even at domestic reform, not to say nothing of relations with Russia. 
But even when they want to pass domestic reforms that are more sensitive to workers, this is an anathema to the Saakashvili people. And so this only goes so far. But not only that, there's also external uh, you know, uh, impositions on the desires of the Georgian labor movement. So, for example, you know about the, um, what was that company called? You know, the oil company in Kakheti. You know what I'm talking about. Frontera. I wrote about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Frontera. Okay, so this is exactly, exactly like Cuba. I mean, this is like Cuba under Batista. This is, this is exactly like Cuba under Batista. And this is, this is the tragedy of post-Soviet Georgia right there. The casinos, like... Uh... You know, parasitic um, industries. Oh, parasitic industries. Well, this is what Ben Kidze loves. He would say, "More investment, the better." You know, who cares about the people? <laughs> how, how does he even call himself a Georgian? You know, to do this to his own people—that's what I want to know. I mean, that this is this is, uh, and there are actually people in Armenia who like these ideas too, of course. And of course, in Ukraine, we see the same thing, and all over the place. And and I don't think I think actually this is one of the reasons why. So, again, no matter what you think of Putin, Putin, by reigning in some of those Russian oligarchs and nationalizing some of the industries in Russia, I mean, of course, it's a state capitalist system, but that was a slap in the face to, uh, you know, the Western cheerleaders of Yeltsin, who wanted to continue with the shock therapy, you know, economy in Russia. And so this is what they kind of, I think that there is sort of this belief that we should try and demonstrate the success of this idea in other former Soviet republics around Russia. Um, and I, I, I don't think uh, it's going to lead to any success at all. It's just going to create a stratified system, as it has in the United States, by the way. Uh, I think that this is important, too, that this kind of neoliberal pro-market ideology does not lead to anything beneficial. It doesn't. I mean, this, this is proven. There's actually a really good book that Brian and I are both reading, um, how China escaped shock therapy, and it does like a, like does like a comparison between China and Russia, and like how China didn't let the shock therapies like come to fruition, while in the beginning Russia did, and so did Georgia, and so did all these countries, and it's like radically different outcomes of one completely like living standards and, and everything else are plummeting and inflation and then China actually like doing much better like every year you know going up so it's it's because of you know very different kind of state-led um and also just didn't didn't prescribe to the liberalization packages about you know price controls being lifted and you know everyone lost their savings and plummeted into like this deep deep poverty that Mm-hmm. Still, people have not gotten out of actually. I don't see if they continue this in Georgia the way it's going. I don't see anyone even coming to uh, like a small uh, like a realization that maybe we should change course. You know, they're they actually just banned gambling and stuff. And I think this cultural conservatism yeah. is more coming back in um, more than which is this is the way they're like since since like leftism is completely you know like abolished here and banned in some ways, right? The only sort of criticism you could actually have to neoliberalism is this sort of moral, cultural uh, critique, right? It's like immoral to have children addicted to gambling. Well, I mean, mean, the reality is it is immoral. I mean, neoliberalism is immoral. So, so there's nothing else I can I can say. I mean, I can add to that. I mean, that that is the reality. But what you're saying is kind of to, you know, uh, this idea of a critique 
is effectively a, a, a kind of a, a, a socialist critique of, of neoliberalism, but without say, mentioning socialism to kind of keep that aspect hidden, you know, because it's been so villainized. And it doesn't even make any sense because even when Georgians talk about the First Republic of Georgia or the, the, the Democratic Republic of Georgia, this was a socialistic state. I mean, this is the other thing, too. The, in many of these movements, these national movements, like even the Dajnaks in Armenia, that was a socialistic movement, right? Because people understood that, um, you know, their desires for a better society, a society where they would have greater national expression, were also tied in with the idea of greater equality in that society. True democracy, because democracy is not about simply, the, you know, it's not just about freedom of speech. You can have freedom of speech, and then you could have you know, uh, corporations exploiting, you know, the people, but that doesn't create real democracy. Real democracy is based on, to some extent, the principle of equality. And this is why, you know, I believe in kind of like a uh, socialism with a human face, you know, kind of like a socialist democracy. And and this is, I think, what Armenia, unfortunately, didn't, like, so many, there were even some Armenians who were hoping for this kind of idea with the so-called recent revolution. Of course, they didn't get it because Pashinyan, himself, I mean, to talk about Armenian issues, is very neoliberal. He's very pro-market. He, he uh, you know, consolidated many Armenian, many Armenian ministries. He, you know, destroyed many, uh, you know, for instance, like the Ministry of Culture no longer exists in Armenia. And these ministries used to be a way for people to get employment and like civil servants. And he said, well, we need to cut down on bureaucracy. So we're going to just, you know, completely abolish entire ministries. Right? This is his approach to, to how he runs uh, the situation. But, you know, and also this idea that we're post-ideology, that, uh, you know, <laughs> there, that, uh, you know, um, I'm not, that, that, that there is no, that there is only kind of like this kind of vague, kind of like liberal, you know, idea of how the world works. I mean, th this is his philosophy, more or less. Uh, but he's proven to himself to be a disaster in Armenia. At least in the Georgian context, there was this, whether it was fully intentional or just out of a particular type of like naivete, this idea that, you know, if we put all of our energy and focus on trying to reform um, the quote unquote democratic institutions of civil society, that somehow economic development is going to follow that. Right. That was the. Wait, is this like a trickle down theory? Is that, that what you're trying but to I'm say? saying? Like, it's not just a trickle down theory. <laughs> like, the reformers, like, that came into power after the Rose Revolution had this very narrow, it's, it's kind of like, like they have a very narrow idea of not just how economics work, but, but it's completely backwards, right? You can't have political democracy without any kind of economic uh, health. A healthy economy, one where people have money and they are like actively uh, buying things and like, you know what I mean? Being paid. No, Brian, 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 Brian. That's because they don't believe that in reality, and they don't tell you this explicitly because they don't believe in democracy. Yeah, I, clearly. I know. They that. believe in, in, like, in corporate exploitation. They don't believe in democracy. I'm saying that they feed into this. I'm saying they, but I'm saying that is that even if they don't believe in it, it's they have then built up a kind of like civil society apparatus that reproduces this idea of foregrounding um, the, the need for things like, um, you know, the reform of bureaucracy or merely a reforming the, the efficacy of the banking system or something as the first step towards, you know, then wealth will come, right? 
And this, I, I'm saying this ideology has been like beaten into people to a degree, you know what I mean? They get, so, so at the same time that somebody can say that they're upset or anxious about the economic insecurity of the country or their own life, that they, that, that, but are still distant from articulating a politics about what a reform of the economy structurally would actually look like. Well, well, speaking about this in the Armenian context, I mean, we can see this with Pashinyan too. I mean, Pashinyan, you know, he did not, um, he was, he came to power to a great degree on people who felt they had been left behind in the regions of Armenia. I mean, that's the majority of the country, you know, that, that people felt like they, you know, that the post-Soviet order did not work out for them, just like in Georgia, just like in Ukraine and so many other parts of the, of the post-Soviet space. and. Um, in, in this way, I mean, he really betrayed them. He didn't really do any reforms that were aimed at improving social welfare in the country. And in fact, he actually made life substantially worse uh, by, in fact, actually uh, bringing this war to Armenia. If we look at what happened with this recent war in Artsakh or in Karabakh, I mean, he more or less kind of brought it on Armenia. That's, that's the tragedy of the whole thing. So, of course, I mean, we cannot, you know, Ignore the, you know, Azerbaijani revanchism and fueled by kind of the, you know, you know, oil corporations in America and all that. And then on top of that, you know, Turkey's, you know, imperial ambitions in the region. So, of course, those are factors, too. But Pashinyan's, you know, ridiculous and reckless, uh, you know, nationalistic, you know, and that's not even really even nationalism. It's like kind of like this. He's like trying to overcompensate for. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to be perceived as a traitor, so he tries to be like so more Catholic than the Pope, and he tries to be more nationalistic and more fanatical. Um, and in reality, all he did was he brought Armenia to the abyss. Now it's a very difficult situation, not only for Armenians in Armenia, but Armenians who are refugees from, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh. <laughs> Thank 